0: you will become addicted because it's designed that way. So my goal is to start to pull back that veil and let them understand what's happening technologically behind the scenes. And when you start to explain that maybe they can't help themselves because the same thing is happening in their body is when they have alcohol or cigarettes, it gives them that permission that they need to say, oh, okay, this is a problem. And now I can take necessary steps to start to change it.
1: 25 years ago, the first smartphones hit the market and we joyfully found the world literally delivered to our fingertips, spinning inside our pockets. Then with the emergence of social media, our smartphones became much more than just a means of talking to the people we work with or staying connected to family and friends we reveled in the technology eagerly scrolling along our thumbs pausing every so often to check in on each other's status updates and double tap vacation photos we began spending more and more time staring at our screens giving our brains hit after hit of dopamine with each comment like love and share our phones became extensions of ourselves making many aspects of our lives seemingly more full and easier to manage but What would you do if your screen suddenly went dark scary thought well you're not alone nomophobia is the fear of being without your mobile phone or being unable to use your phone for some scary reason like not having a signal or running out of battery the spike of anxiety in our bodies when we're unable to access our devices is no small thing And the more we feed into these cravings, the more likely we are to feel how this behavior negatively impacts other areas of our lives. This is not to hate on technology, but there are important questions we need to be asking. How does this behavior affect our personal relationships, our mental health? And once we start learning about the true impact it's having on our lives, how do we find the strength to beat this addiction? In this episode, we speak to a formerly plugged-in digital strategist turned tech ethicist and mindfulness leader about what happened when she started to learn about the negative effects mobile phones and social media use can have on our brains. But first, we talk to Dr. Brian Primack, a clinician, professor, and researcher at the University of Pittsburgh School of Medicine who studies positive and negative effects of media and technology on health. In this episode on nomophobia, There's definitely something to be afraid of, but it's less about what happens when you don't have your phone and more about what happens when you do. I'm Jeff Krasno, and welcome to Commune.
2: I am Brian Primack, and I have two major roles here at the University of Pittsburgh. The first is that I am dean of the Honors College, and then my other role is that I'm director of the Center for Research on Media, Technology, and Health. I research and look at both the potential positives that media and technology may have for health, as well as some of the problems or drawbacks.
1: Well, I'll start with this question. I believe you also have a teenager. And I can't seem as hard as I try to read to her and cook her kale every morning to shake that Snapchatty phone out of her hand. So now that we seem to come to an understanding that social media adoption is on the rise, what other kinds of behavioral ramifications or, or outcomes have you found potentially associated with that rise in adoption?
2: Well, we've been particularly interested in mental health. And one of the reasons for that is that there is a real epidemic of mental health problems um, in the United States and the world. So when we started looking at the relationship between social media use and, say, depression, We actually thought that there was going to be sort of a a nuanced relationship. We did not expect to see sort of a straight line, you know, more social media use, more depression. Every level of increase of social media use was associated with a increase in the likelihood of depression. And that was true across all age groups. That relationship was true for men and women and basically every sort of sociodemographic category that we looked at. And it was a steep relationship and it was linear. And that was definitely news to us.
1: And did you come to a kind of a hypothesis?
2: I think that we had overestimated the value of what people get from a cell phone, uh, what people get from their social media, in the sense that, you know, we thought that people were going to be at a disadvantage if they didn't use any social media at all, but it turned out that those were basically the happiest people. That's probably where we were not correct. Um, You know, I still think though there there are a few different possibilities. I mean, one thing that certainly you have to, you know, keep in mind with a study like this, where you're just looking at relationships uh, and you're not necessarily like you know looking at people over a 20 year period or something like that is that we don't necessarily know which direction you know this relationship goes so it very well could be that it what we're just finding is that people who are more depressed tend to spend more time on their cell phones the other possibility is that people who use a lot of social media, you know, they might think that they're connecting, but really those connections that they're forming aren't necessarily really replacing valuable in-person relationships. The other possibility there is that people who spend a lot of time on social media are subject to sort of lots and lots of hours of seeing everybody else um, talking about You know, how great their lives are, and that person doesn't feel like they can quite measure up.
1: Yeah, exactly. You know, I think about the accumulation of friends or followers and those little kind of dopamine hits that you get, you know, chemically every time you get a certain amount of likes or positive reinforcement on social media. Uh, And you may accumulate tens of thousands of those, but then all of a sudden, you know, you have a flat tire and you need someone to pick up your daughter from school and how many people can you really call? Like yeah, one or two. Um yeah. And that's maybe a result of just the reality that real deep connection takes time, but it also may require face-to-face connectedness, which... Uh, social media cannot provide.
2: Yeah, we're a very social animal, and we've developed that sort of need for social interaction over, you know, literally millions of years of evolution, but social media has been around for about 20 years. Now, we can try through social media to um, mimic some of those things. So, You know, maybe an in-person smile gives you joy, and so then there's an emoji. Maybe it does give you sort of a little bit of, you know, like you said, that that dopamine hit, but can it truly replace the natural? Not necessarily. We did a study on this and, and published it that we found that the more people in your friend list who you've never met before face-to-face, for every single one of those people, your likelihood of being depressed, of being socially isolated, actually increases. Mm -hmm. So the idea there is, you know, when you're just accumulating friends and you get this big rush of like, oh my gosh, this person I don't even know, you know, accepted my friend request and likes me, and that actually turns out to be sort of a, a, a false sense of joy because it's those sort of weak relationships you know that don't really have a basis in um you know uh reality that you know may contribute to problems later on those are the people who might be more likely to misinterpret something that we say and i think one of the real values is in saying i already have th- these this group of friends and this is a way for me to kind of extend my relationship in today's very you know, hectic, chaotic world with people that I already have a connection with. So hopefully what we're doing is we're not having it replace, we're having it sort of augment.
1: Yeah. So your advice potentially to a young teenage girl per se, be it my daughter or not, might be As far as friends and followers on social media go, less might be more.
2: Yeah. What I like to think of it is selective. One thing is to select your friends carefully. You know, who is it that you really want, you know, to sort of be forming these uh, relationships with? But the other is like, for example, selecting the different platforms that you're gonna use because it's also been shown that the more platforms you try to use, um, even controlling for the total amount of time that you spend is directly also related to more depression, more anxiety, more social isolation. So if there are two people and they both use two hours a day of social media, but the person on the right splits that up among seven different platforms and the person on the left just uses two different platforms. The person on the right is actually three times as likely to be depressed. (laughs) And again, we're not sure if depressed people are just sort of more searching or whether there's something about you know trying to deal with so many different platforms that like really gets overwhelming, I mean each one of these platforms is kind of its own little world it, it It has this very sort of idiosyncratic almost language and and if you're trying to sort of keep up with that you know with a whole lot of different platforms you're more likely to potentially to make a gaff you're you're more you're less likely to maybe form you know, some more solid connections and everything is a little bit weaker. It's not just that, you know, fewer friends may be more, but, you know, fewer platforms may be better and also being selective in terms of how you use the social media.
1: And I think that there is a component of this discussion that um, has to do with addiction and addictive behavior and kind of back to that sort of Neuroscientific approach of you know okay we're getting this sort of reward neurotransmitter burst you know um, every time that we pick up our phone and we see some sort of positive reinforcement in in the form of likes or, or as you say new friends accepting you to the point where we have as a culture, develop this sort of irrational fear of being without our phone. And there's this term that has started to circulate called nomophobia.
2: Oh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, In fact, we've done some specific studies, not only sort of demonstrating that I think it is sort of a real thing, um, but also demonstrating that, you know, when people have that, it is linked independently, again, with the amount of time that you use your phone to things like anxiety and depression and, you know, feelings of social isolation. But if you look at, you know, sort of definitions of addiction and what the sort of key components are, like withdrawal, you know, (laughs) having symptoms when you don't have something, that's how we define things like alcohol and cocaine addiction. There was this one study that I think of, for example, that says that uh, I think it was 20% of people would rather go without shoes for a week than take a break from their phone. <laughs> and, and so it, it, it's one of these things where I would be concerned about those 20% of people. And it's been uh, estimated that it's about two thirds of adults who have some degree of this nomophobia, you know, about two and three people, they sleep next to their phones, people, answer phones at all kinds of awkward times, you know, even during intimacy. These are all things that we look at when, when we try to assess whether someone's addicted to something. You know, we say, well, you know, has using this interfered with your social relationships, your, you know, family life? And And so, you know all of a sudden, it really does make sense when you you know look at those same addiction criteria. And I think it's worth noting that it makes sense on this neurotransmitter level that you're talking about because there are some very, very sophisticated companies and infrastructures that are out there sort of increasing that dopamine rush right you know the, uh, the, there are designers who are very specifically Figuring out exactly how quickly and how or how slowly the notification should pop up—you know, should it fade in? Should it fade out? What's going to be the most compelling? The little sound that goes along with it—should it be an A flat or an A natural? You know, and and you know those those are real kinds of decisions that are being made.
1: I wonder if that is something. You would suggest when we enter social situations, real face-to-face connectivity, that we find ways to actually discard our phone.
2: Yeah, I think that in the best of all possible worlds, we would, you know, be developing our own self-control. We would, you know, we would be more likely whenever we go to some kind of a real social situation, not only to not have the phone you know, on the table, but to have it turned off and somewhere, you know, physically, you know, truly away. There was a study that showed that even when the phone is completely powered off, but if it's still on the table, then you are distracted.
1: (laughs) Well, I have a lunch in about an hour and I'll tell you what, I'm going to turn my phone off and I'm going to put it in my bag. And I will ask the other two gentlemen that I'm having lunch with to do the same, and I will report back. How's that?
2: <laughs> that sounds good. You can blame it on me. You can say, "Oh, I talked to this really annoying doctor today, and you know, he said we should try this. Ugh, you know, let's just try this annoying thing." And I, you know, I, I do think that it really, you know, does make a difference. And I didn't always feel that way. It really has been, you know, actually doing the research and working with patients and working with research subjects that has really, I I don't know, helped bring a lot of these issues to light in my mind.
1: Well, I don't think that this is a subject matter that is going away anytime soon. So my sense is I will need to call you again if that's okay.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And you can find me on social media. No, I'm just kidding. I'm sure I can.
1: Jess Davis is the founder of Folk Rebellion, a movement where she promotes slower living and the more mindful use of technology. As a formerly plugged-in digital strategist and award-winning brand consultant, her fast tech-based career granted her a unique perspective, so much so that her life went from working to get people more digitally connected to now, trying to get us to unplug the drug. I got a chance to sit down with her and talk tech-life balance in Palm Springs this weekend during Wanderlust's Wellspring Festival.
0: My name is Jess Davis and I'm the founder and editor-in-chief of Folk Rebellion, which uh, started out as a lifestyle brand advocating for awareness and change in how we're using our technology, but has since transitioned more towards like a slow media concept where we do uh, printed publication that people can take into their homes and Pour over their content; it's eighty pages long, so it should take them a month to read it purposefully and help their internet-riddled brains focus again. Um, and we're launching a podcast similar to you guys in a in the new year.
1: Good for you! Have Thanks. me on. So, of course, I'll I'll start with just you know sometimes these statistics can just really grab someone, right? There's a few that just like freak me out. Like 90% of 18 to 29 year olds sleep with their phone.
0: Yeah. I know that that's up to 95% now and something like 80% sleep with it either on their chest or under their pillow. And 60% of the cell phone's radiation is absorbed into the head. So... If you want to get scary about it, right off the bat, I just went for it. it there th- this is a problem, just physically being within something that we are not able to study quick enough.
1: There's this one sixty seven percent of self. Owners experience phantom vibrations. What, yes. is, what is that?
0: That is where you don't have your phone within arm's distance or on your body, but you feel it vibrating. And this just happened to me. I took a group of people to Greece on one of our off the grid adventures. We do these big trips once a year, and it was day six, and I was still feeling. Buzzing, and I have a pretty good relationship with my phone. It's not always on me; it's somewhere away, but I still felt it. And what I feel are email dings. I like know the difference, right? Yeah. So that's a phantom vibration.
1: Even you have
0: that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh no! This all started because I was a total addict, and and I needed to change things for myself, and mostly for my son, because I had had a whole life without this technology. I didn't get my first cell phone until I was twenty-one. And um, if I became this addicted, I couldn't imagine what it would be like for Hayes.
1: Yeah. So you use the word addicted Yeah. on purpose.
0: Yes. Yeah. yeah we got to call it what it is. And people don't like it. And I will say five years ago, maybe I wasn't so outright with it. I was just trying to get people to wrap their heads around the fact that we could challenge the concept of how we're utilizing this right now, there can be a better way. But what I found is without balance, boundaries, and education, you will become addicted because it's designed that way. So my goal is to start to pull back that veil, educate the average user, you know, um, user also sounds like a drug user, um, and, and start to, you know, let them understand what's happening technologically behind the scenes so that they can say they feel a little validated when someone says to me, I don't know why I'm doing this, or I'm so mad at my husband because he's on Reddit instead of, you know, snuggling with me. And when you start to explain that maybe they can't help themselves because the same thing is happening in their body is when they have alcohol or cigarettes or things like that, it gives them that permission that they need to say, oh, okay, this is a problem, and now I can take necessary steps to start to change it.
1: Yeah, so when you make that comparison to alcohol or drugs, what's happening, uh, and I know you're not a neuroscientist, but what is happening with your brain chemistry that continues to reward that sort of behavior um, that keeps you coming back and checking likes or followers?
0: Yeah. So your brain is actually being rewired by the internet or um, what it is you're consuming. So it's not necessarily what you consume, but how you're consuming it. So the shorter the content, the shorter your attention span. So the rewiring is happening. They've been able to map this. These technologists and people building these platforms understand that the same response that you're getting when you smoke a cigarette or have sex or, you know, have alcohol, it's, it's creating this sort of dopamine in your body that makes you feel pleasure and joy briefly. And this is the most briefest form of it. And if you're every square on Instagram is releasing that every notification is releasing that. And so the more you do it, the more you crave it. And it's, It's a sad, empty void. And without boundaries, people are just going to start opting out. Without understanding, um, it's kind of eroding everything from democracy to children and relationships. And
1: Yeah, it's, you know, this community tool that essentially erodes community.
0: Right. Well, the words connection, sharing, community— mean one thing, but when you realize that the person's sitting home alone and not actually going to meet their friends because they can see what their friends are doing, I understand, you know, because I've read all of the, this research that you feel sad and, and you texting me LOL is entirely different than me seeing you laugh, right? It, 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 biologically, we are analog creatures. And yes, it's great to be able to do that and once in a while, but it shouldn't be a replacement.
1: And in fact, Brian Primack talks about the proportional in a relationship between digital adoption and social isolation. Really? That you actually can map the two. In equal proportion.
0: Well, you know, there's people out there like Jean Twenge who's gone on the record and said, I am able to say, I've studied this. She's able to show that bell curve of when these social platforms were introduced in the iPhone and then when the prescription anxiety medication went up between ages 12 to 18. Teenagers who spend more than three hours on Uh, cell phone devices through social media are 35% more likely to commit suicide. That's crazy.
1: I think it's important to point out that you play a very unique and important role in what you're doing in terms of being able to connect these ideas that are certainly circulating around the intellectual community, the university community, the neuroscience community, but that's not where teenagers are hanging out or getting their information. I've always been a great admirer of, of your visual identity and how you've presented the brand. And you are using that brand to connect with younger people, not just younger people, but all people. What do you feel like your role is in the conversation as a business owner, as a cultural icon. (laughs)
0: Oh, God, thanks. Um, You know, I learned early on that I was super interested in this research and this data. And when I came out on the other side, I was like a little scared. Uh, No one wants to be told that they're scrambling their brain or their kids' brains. But uh, forever, I've been a lifestyle brand builder and a marketer. And I knew how to uh, build community around a concept or an idea. And I knew how to take big ideas or intellectual ideas and um, simplify them a little bit so it was uh, more consumable to the everyday person. Five years ago when I started this, the words digital detox didn't exist. Now you have Google coming out in their I.O. and Apple saying, you know, digital well-being is a thing. So there, there is headway being made. Um, but again, this stuff can affect you very quickly in your own home, in your own four walls. They're like, hey guys, over there with all your degrees, can we take this information and bring it to the mom who's struggling with her teenager or the school teacher who can't get the kids to pay attention because cell phones are allowed in their classroom or to the husband who's having a hard time connecting with his wife because they've got the menage a trois on the bed with the iPad. So really what I do is I like, try to go into people's homes and micro-communities and um, make the information accessible, digestible for them, easy to understand, and then give them tools to then go and enact change in their own communities in a very simple and actionable way. Um, And it's worked. It's really worked. I've got people like writing me letters from doctors and nurses, um, writing me letters from doctors' offices saying, you know, we used to know all of our clients and we don't anymore because everyone comes in and they stare at their phones. What can we do? It's not about being anti-technology. It's what you're losing when the technology's there all the time. And what these nurses felt is, they were losing the connection of knowing who these people were. So we made it a game and we had a basket and they got rewards. And so I guess that's my role is the advocating for, for the everyday person.
1: You're the Pied Piper.
0: Yeah, I like that. <laughs> <Of> digital
1: detox. <laughs> Back in the 70s, Texas had an awful problem. And this wasn't just Texas, but Texas was particularly egregious where people would um, buy fast food and they would drive down the highway and eat the food. And when they were done, they would just take it and throw the trash out the window. There wasn't a consciousness around that, but it got so bad on the Texas highways that it became a huge problem. And the state of Texas tried everything to solve this problem. And eventually they hired an agency that was um, started by a guy named Roy Spence. And they said, you know, Roy, help us with this problem. And Roy came up with a slogan that was powerful and cool and macho and it was don't mess with Texas. Stop. And that of course now has taken on a whole Holy life and on every other t-shirt that one might see but he just found that yeah. way of phrasing it that made people take pride in their own land and said this is screwed up. We have to stop. it. Don't mess with Texas.
0: That's amazing.
1: And, you know, that's what you're doing. You know, you're doing the same of, of being able to create a new way to think about this this problem.
0: Yeah, we, I, I, I chose to position it like a counterculture, a little edgy, uh, going against the grain, um, and let people get a little fire in their belly once— they realize what's been happening to them because it's just been happening to them. It's funny, once I have these conversations or people see me talk or listen to this podcast, it's like a switch that they've just never even thought about it. They didn't even realize there could be a different way. And then they get pissed. And I love that because that's where the change happens.
1: Okay, so when people get pissed or when they start to actually acknowledge, I mean, with any addiction, right? It's like you acknowledge the addiction first and then you have to start to unwind old patterns and bad patterns and, and wind up new good patterns. So what do those new good patterns look like when it comes to sort of mindful phone use or mindful digital device use?
0: You just have to start to create space there again where these things have consumed everything or cannibalized everything. It's now our phone, it's our calendar, it's just everything. So you have to create space both physically mentally and then with the device itself and how you're utilizing it. So the simplest thing people do right off the bat is to remove the phone from your bedroom. Of course, the radiation is bad, but more so it's the space that you allow, even if it's 10 minutes before you go to sleep and 10 minutes when you wake up to just let your brain not be stimulated. Okay. So I was big Zig Ziglar fan in my (laughs) late teens and early twenties. And he used to have you picture a check on your ceiling of what you wanted in your life. And that could be anything on that check. You could have a family, you could have a dollar amount, you could have a house. So I had this check that I visualized every morning when I woke up and every night when I went to bed, then I was giving a speech and I was talking about this and I realized I was speaking about it in the past tense, as in I hadn't been doing this. And I was like, when did I stop doing this? And I, looked back and it was when I brought a cell phone into my bedroom. So by removing the phone, one, it's better for your health. Two, it's better for your sleep, but it lets your brain click into that off position and start to process things. Think about your day or just be there with like the person lying next to you. And then in the morning, it lets you be proactive versus reactive. So that seems to be the biggest and easiest change.
1: When you say space, you are referring both to physical space and time space. Yes, yes. Are there other just actionable things that people can just put in their life?
0: They just have to figure out what boundaries they want. So usually the first thing that comes up is work. So we start to have to push back a little bit on that. But you can't change these boundaries and say, I'm going to batch my email I'm going to not work after 8 p.m. I am not going to carry my phone on me 24-7. So if you don't hear from me, I'm not dead in a ditch. But just know you can't do these things unless you communicate it. So the I always say like the best defense is a good offense. So decide what your boundaries are. You're never going to get them right the first time. It took me six months to figure out what was going to work for me, work for my business, work for my family, the whole time I'm communicating with people, hey, I'm trying this thing. I think it's gonna make my work better. I think it's gonna make me feel better. No one's gonna say, I don't think you should do that. Right. Um, or if they do, it's usually because they also have a problem they don't want to look at.
1: Yeah. So I think as that's part of the issue that might prevent someone from taking some of these actionable steps is that there, there there's a worry that, oh, my business is going to suffer because I'm not going to be responsive. And so people are going to think I'm a flake or I'm going to, things are going to fall through the cracks. My to-do list is not going to get done, Totally. but you could apply it to other parts of your life too. What would you say to the, to the worriers?
0: I I 100% can guarantee that they're, productivity will increase if they start to set better boundaries to their usage. I've read all these studies. I understand that every time my computer or phone dings, it takes me off task and it puts me back on, takes me 25 minutes to get back on. If you do that all day long, you're never actually doing any work. You're just responding or looking or distracting yourself. So, I started to bucket my time and it's very much like Tim Ferriss. I mean, it's you do your most important task first. You spend 2 hours fully focused on it. You shut out the rest of the world. You tell them, "For 2 hours, I'm going to be doing this." And you have to set up like like solutions. So I had to put a landline in both my office and my home. So I say, "For 2 hours, I'm shutting everything down. I'm working on this really important book proposal. It's the most important thing in my life right now. I have to do it. You guys know that. If you need me, call the landline. Guess how many people have called the landline in five years? Two. Zero, because I'm making people uh, start to relearn the difference between urgent and instant. The more that you start to set these these batch times and these boundaries, your creativity increases, your productivity increases. It's nothing but blue skies and amazing stuff. Uh, but no one will know until they try. So just try.
1: Well, I have a feeling that this is the beginning of this movement because I have a teenager, my three daughters, and uh, man, you know, you can make them as much kale as you possibly can and you can read to them every night and we do but you cannot compete with snapchat and instagram and you just need to change the way that they're thinking and approaching their life and this uh this message is really important so thank you
0: thank you for having me
1: So do we have something to be afraid of? Can we truly assess the cost versus value of compulsively checking our phones and social media? When it feels like everyone else is always connected, we add a dash of FOMO to that nomophobia, making it even more difficult to change our habits. We wonder, will I be at a disadvantage if I try to change? The freedom sounds great in theory, but in today's world, is it possible to stay connected without staying glued to our phones? According to recovered phone addict, Jess Davis, it can be done. And as for that FOMO, well, in Brian's study, it turned out that the happiest people didn't use social media at all. But as both our guests said, it's still early when it comes to researching the long-term impacts. And yes, it's possible that people who are more depressed spend more time on their cell phones, but maybe those connections they're forming are just replacing valuable in-person relationships. If we're honest with ourselves, we don't need research to show us just how these behaviors negatively affect our relationships and mental health. We've all looked across the dinner table at a loved one's face as they look down at the screen instead of into our eyes. We've all scrolled through other people's lives, wondering why ours don't seem as picturesque. Perhaps it's time to take a realistic look at what we're doing with our devices. Those little hits of dopamine might be calling our name, buzzing in our pockets and inside our brains. But this Halloween, maybe we try something really scary. Leave the phone at home. Thanks for listening to this week's Commune podcast. Be sure to subscribe as we have new episodes airing every week. I'm Jeff Krasno. I'll see you next time.